Uh, next Sunday morning, we are beginning a new series in the book of Galatians called No Other Gospel. It's been referred to as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, of Christian liberty. Um, Galatians, along with Romans, uh, was, in Martin Luther's words, the pebble from the brook with which the Reformers smote the papal giant of the Middle Ages. It was a major impact as the gospel was rediscovered during uh, the Reformation. Luther would call the book his wife. He would say, the epistle is my, is my epistle. It, we are in wedlock. It is my Catherine. That's his wife's name. That's how important the book of Galatians is. As Paul will tell us, get the gospel wrong. It's all about the gospel. Uh, damnation awaits. But get the gospel right. And there is freedom and there is joy and there is love. It's all about the gospel. Of course, his name is Jesus. Um, Our mission here at King's Chapel is to bring glory to God by living on mission with him and making disciples through gospel-centered worship transformation and community. We believe that all followers, all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are commanded in Scripture to live missionally, meaning we are missionaries wherever God places us and puts us, whether it is in another country far away or it is here in our workplace, in our communities, in our schools. We are to live in demonstrating the gospel with with love and generosity and declare it uh, with words about Jesus' perfect life, his burial, death, burial, and resurrection from the grave. So here at King's Chapel, we have both what we call local and global Partners, where we partner together with people living on mission as we are as a church with other organizations that are living gospel-centered lives and, and, and mission, both locally and globally. And one of our uh, global partners that we support is a man by the name of Sean Nolan, who is here today. Uh, Sean is a, is a friend of mine. I've known him for quite some time, maybe seven or eight years. Uh, Sean is a native of the Capital District and was introduced uh, to Jesus by a high school young lady, smart man. He married her. His, her name is Hannah, lovely wife Hannah. Um, he was at the uh, Terra Nova Church for several years. Uh, pastor Ed, you know, the lead pastor there, planted this church here. Uh, while he completed seminary, he was uh, interning there. He served then on staff at church in Baltimore, Maryland, as the family life pastor for three years and just had a calling, a calling, a calling on his life to come back to Albany and to plant a church in downtown Albany area. So it's called Engage Church of Albany. Uh, he came back about a year now, September, I think, 2018. Uh, his lovely wife, Hannah, is with him. His three children, Knox is five, Hazel is three, Ransom is one. Um, you've seen him here before. He has fellowship with us, and we are so thankful that he is here to uh, not only update us for uh, what's going on with the church plant, but also bring the word in John chapter 2. So, Sean, come on up, brother. Let me pray for you. Um, In the back of your bulletin, you do have all the global and local partners that we uh, support here at King's Chapel. Um, We try to add. We've been adding ones every year as the church continues to grow. We believe in in supporting um, other missionaries as we live on the mission together. So he's going to give an update, and let me, let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for Sean and Hannah and their beautiful children, Lord God, and I thank you that you have called him to this region uh, that desperately needs to hear the good news mm. of the gospel. So, Father, we're praying for him, his family, as they navigate through this church planting, Lord, as they begin gathering in community groups and just sharing the good news of, uh, of the gospel to all those you would bring 
to their community. Mm. So, Father, we're asking that you would fill him with your spirit today as he opens the word to us. And, Father, we're asking that you would just give clarity to him, uh, open ears to us, that we may hear the voice of Jesus and continue to walk with him, living Mm. missionally together as brothers and sisters on the good mission. As you have declared, all authority in heaven has been given Mm. to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples. So, Father, that's what we're about. We look forward to what you're going to do, and we Mm. just add your blessing upon this brother as he preaches Mm. to us. In Jesus' good name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So let me start by giving you guys kind of a... Oh, okay, yeah. Let me start by giving you a a bit of an update on kind of our church planting effort. So the difference between a, a church plant and a church, I think, maybe besides 50 or 60 people, is that we don't quite have Sunday gatherings yet, which gives me an opportunity to be here with you all this Sunday. But So until we have Sunday gatherings, we're not a fully functioning church yet. But our, our hope, our, our DNA is that we would be a, a church of small groups and not just a church with small groups, not unlike King's Chapel, where we would have... Uh, we would scatter for mission throughout the city of Albany. We would, we would meet in homes and fellowship together there with uh, a few purposes to, to get into the Word, but, but more than just a Bible study, to get into the Word and to worship the Lord, um, to have community and to care for each other, to, to fulfill those one another's of Scripture, and then finally to, to keep multiplying those and to be on mission, to reach our neighbors and to reach the lost. So that's kind of the, the DNA of our church. Uh, to make you all a little uncomfortable, if you search through Scripture, nowhere does it say, go and plant churches. You won't, you won't find that command there. However, as, as Lou just referenced, Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples. So I can't tell you how freeing it is to know I'm trying to fulfill that, that command that Jesus gives us to go and make disciples, to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So I think if we focus on that, then Christ is faithful to to build his church. He promised to do that. So, so that's what we're looking to do now. Uh, I'm not worried uh, about the details of when God will do that. People always ask, when are you going to go lo- live? When are you going to launch? And so I think the, the answer is really more who. So, so when we have a group of disciples who are committed to, to, uh, to materializing on a Sunday morning for, for worship together and, and bought into our vision, which I think if the, if the vision doesn't come from this book right here, then it's, it's not a vision from God, right? So we, we want to be a word-centered, a word-saturated church focused on Jesus Christ, who, who saves us from our sin, that will continue to, to do what he promised to do, to push back the gates of hell. So that's the, that's the vision for Engage. I think the word that I'm going to show, share with you today gets into that a little bit. Um, I want to, I'm reminded of, of a promise that, a uh, command really, that, that is written through Paul in Romans, where he says to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. To kind of start on a, a worshipful full tone, that can only be fulfilled in the local church, right? So if, as I look out on a room, there are some of you that are probably going through some pretty hard trials, and there are some others that are probably in really great seasons of joy. What beauty that God can meet us both in those, those tracks today. So, um, so that's just, that just... I, I, I hang my hopes on that, that we have this God who can meet people that are in various seasons of life, and only in the local church do we see that. Um, I, personally, I'm, I'm kind of grieving the, the loss of a, of a loved one, which is, a, is kind of hanging over my head, but, I, but because of all those loose, loose uh, ends that are out there, I'd had this, this message on joy prepared for you, so I'm going to try and uh, portray that message of joy today in hopes that it will, will serve you people, and, um, and I, I just appreciate you guys praying for our church plant and your partnership in the gospel. 
Lou didn't pay me to say this, but he's a really great pastor. He's been a, a really great <laughs> friend to me, as well as, as, well as Ricky and Chris. Um, I, I mean, just what will our church look like? Hopefully similar to, to King's Chapel, because I firmly believe the things that make a church good and healthy are not the things that make it different from other churches, but the things they have in common with the church throughout the last 2,000 years. That's the most important thing about a church, is that it looks like the rest of the church throughout history. And uh, Lou just brags on you guys all the time. He talks about how, how, how great of a job he has to, to pastor you folks. So uh, thank you guys. It's really a, a joy to be here with you today. So um, I'll be in John chapter 2, first 11 verses while you're finding that. Don't be distracted that I accidentally prepared these with a different translation than you're used to. It's still God's word with, uh, with maybe some synonyms instead of the exact same uh, language. So while you find that in John chapter 2, let me pray for us. Father, we're just so grateful, so thankful that you would not leave us lost in our sin, that you would send Jesus Christ to live amongst us, that uh, the Word would take on flesh, that we would behold His glory, that He would be full of grace and truth. You could have sent a plan to save us, but instead you sent a person. He meets us in our deepest need, God. What great hope we have that regardless of what we're going through, we can come to you, that We don't have to go to our Father in shame because Jesus took all that shame on the cross so that we could have joy and eternal life forevermore. Just pray that you would push us deeper into that truth today and that we would know that in our hearts, that we would see you today. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to say today, God. Holy Spirit, use my words, use your word to do what you've promised to accomplish. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, in uh, John chapter 2 here, um, I'm not prepared with my notes here, forgive me for that. So I was once told by an older pastor that he, he didn't do weddings, which I thought was odd. It didn't occur to me at first, but he told me, I, I got into the ministry not to marry people, but to preach the gospel. And I remember thinking at the time that, that just didn't sit well with me, I didn't quite know why, I was young and... Uh, inexperienced in the faith, and, um, and I had, had done a wedding or two at the time, and I had shortly after had an opportunity to officiate the wedding of a couple that, that was getting married down in Mexico. It was a great, a great gift and a great blessing that they were able to provide for my wife and I to be there, and I was, it was when I was sitting on the, the sands of Mexico officiating this wedding, and I saw people pulling up chairs and sitting down, and as I'm looking at the notes that I prepared for this wedding, I see Scripture after scripture, and I realized if, if there are two poles where you're preaching weddings or you're preaching the gospel and they're opposite, you're not preaching weddings right, right? Because a, a wedding, according to Ephesians 5, a, a marriage is a reflection of the gospel. It's, this mystery is profound, Paul says, and it refers to Christ in the church, that a husband is called to love his wife and to serve her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, um, what more joyous event can we attend on earth than a wedding? Weddings are one of the greatest reflections of heaven on earth. And again, they are these joyous occasions. Jesus came to make our joy complete. That's what he says in John chapter 15. In Romans 14, they, Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not a, a matter of eating and drinking, but of peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Uh, you're probably familiar with the fruit of the Spirit. A couple of those. Joy, peace, love, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. But again, joy. Galatians 5. 
In his presence, the Psalms tell us, fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. So with all this emphasis on joy in Scripture and the amount of joy found in the mystery that is revealed at a wedding, let's read this chapter in John chapter 2. It says there, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, They don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first, and then after people are drunk, the inferior But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. So John records these events. They're they're not contained in any of the other three Gospels, actually. Some people have wondered why that's the case. Now, uh, we don't know for sure, but... There's an interesting event, one of my personal favorite things you see in Scripture is when Jesus is actually on the cross, this man who has everything stripped from him, he's, he's being tortured on our behalf, and yet, with nothing, he gives gifts. And he looks at the Apostle John, and he says, Behold your mother. And he looks at his mother Mary, and he says, Woman, behold your son. So you can wonder if maybe, maybe John was one of the people at this event, happening in Cana, this, this wedding, or maybe Mary had told him about it at another point. But uh, he, if you're reading through John's gospel chronologically, he hadn't called all 12 of his disciples yet, so they weren't all there with him at the wedding. There's maybe five or six of them. And they, they, they record, John records this, this one event that no other gospels record, the first miracle that Jesus performed. Jesus' father had likely already passed away, and hence he isn't mentioned in the event. So there are really four things I want us to focus on in this text. The first is uh, the wedding. There's a pretty simple, right? It's a wedding. Uh, That's that's where where the things happen, where this event happens. And then there's the wine. The wine is a a significant thing. It's the miracle. And then how the witnesses respond. The witnesses worship. And then finally, I want to I want to kind of end on a note of application. I call it while we wait. So those are the four things I want to focus on today. That's kind of our roadmap today. So, so diving in, the backdrop against which Jesus performs his first miracle is a wedding, which I think is significant. It happens in this rather obscure town, Cana of Galilee. His mother's already there. Probably it was a, a close friend or possibly a relative of hers, and that's why she's at the wedding before he arrives with some of his disciples. When we look at her role in the scene, kind of gives us some, some insight into that. It seems like she was kind of a key player in this event. And Jesus and his disciples are also invited to show up in Cana. The, the couple of this event, they don't even tell us their name. They, they, this obscure couple, never named. It's likely that they were poor. 
because of the fact that they run out of wine. We maybe get some insight into that. If you, if you would run out of wine at a, at a wedding in first century Jewish culture, this was a, a week-long event maybe, and it was a big celebration. You were expected to provide for the accommodations of those that would be attending that wedding event with you. So, so some people think that you could even be fined if you ran out of food or wine at a wedding like that because it was expected that you would take care of, of the people that were joining in the celebration. So it would have caused them great social embarrassment for running out of wine at this wedding. Could you imagine if you, you start out your new life together with your spouse and then you become known as that couple of like, hey, remember those folks, they ran out of wine at the wedding. Um, that, that, the cloud that would put over your wedding and the social embarrassment that would call you. Another thing about them being poor is that there, there's something in that I think that, that we get some insight into. I, I don't know what it is, but I think in our Western mind frame, sometimes we, we tend to not understand the difference between entertaining people and showing hospitality. We can't be sure, but is it, is it possible that Jesus bringing those disciples with him, that maybe they weren't invited, but he was? Maybe a couple of them were, but he kind of brings these extra people, and they just make room for it. They accommodate it. Hey, there's always room for a couple more, more people because they want to be hospitable. But sometimes in our Western mind frame, I think we focus more on entertainment. My wife and I talk, talk about this a lot in terms of like, man, we should invite these people over, but we don't have time to clean the house. And then we realize, man, there's a big difference between saying our door is always open and saying, um, you know, we, we want to impress you, right? If, if we were to pull the room right now, if people were to show up at your house, how embarrassed would you be? <laughs> right? Because, because we think we need to impress people. But but what a better insight into the heart of God and the heart of, that his people should have to not adopt these methods of the world that we want to impress people with our big flat screen TVs and our nice pristine houses, which is a lie, right? My house doesn't normally look like that just when I have guests coming over. But I, you notice sometimes in countries that have much less money than we do, they always have enough food for their friends, right? So you see this couple, they, they don't mind that Jesus allows some of his disciples to tag along with them because a friend of Jesus is a friend of theirs. So, so they're invited to, to this wedding of this poor couple. And Jesus chooses this obscure town to do his first miracle. Nothing Jesus does is by accident. Cain is not mentioned much in the Bible or in history. Uh, there's a there early historian named Josephus. He talks about the resurrection of Christ, even though he wasn't a follower of Christ, which is really interesting, some, some evidence for his resurrection outside of Scripture. Uh, he mentions Cana of Galilee. He had a, had a house there, apparently, at one time. But apart from that, really, you're not going to find that in much history outside of the Bible. And even in the Bible, it's mentioned maybe one other time. But yet, we're talking about it here, right now, 2,000 years later. I think that... It gives us some insight into the heart of God, right? Uh, I've been reading the news a lot lately. I, I try to keep up on it. Haven't seen Glenmont mentioned in world news much. <laughs> but I would argue to say that what's happening in the nursery back there is more important than most of the things that are in the, in the news right now. God cares about Glenmont. He cares about us here. He cares about the city of Albany. Also not in the news that much. Jokingly call it Smallbany sometimes. Uh, we'll, we'll read some things that happen in the legislature passing some of the most heartbreaking uh, abortion bills in the country. But again, what's happening right here today is more important in, in the divine history book that God is writing than what's happening in the Capitol building in Albany. God is on the move. It's been an encouraging to me to just see that 
kingdom-minded churches, kingdom-minded pastors who want to see something happen in Albany. We're a part of an extended family of people called the family of God. And people are holding the reins as we're just this little, I sometimes say a church plan is a, a, a baby church. We're not crawling yet. We're like an infant about to roll over onto our belly. So as we multiply community groups, we, we just started our second one a couple weeks ago. So that's encouraging. Praise God. And, and hopefully we'll start a third. I hope to end the year with four, if not be really close to starting a fourth. Um, God cares about seemingly insignificant towns and seemingly insignificant people in, in history. He calls them to himself. Jesus wants to join those who are happy to have him and make room for him at the table, as he did at this wedding. This time he brings five or six disciples with him, and I think there's something important that we need to know about him showing up. Jesus is not afraid to celebrate. Now, in some church backgrounds that people come from, I know uh, they'll say dancing is a sin. But I, I can assure you, at a first century Jewish wedding, there was dancing there. Jesus might have even partook. I know that might be scandalous to say <laughs> to some people. Now, there was a, a, a group of people called the Puritans, really, really word, Bible-loving people. And they often get characterized as people that didn't love fun, which is not true. If you read, if you read their work, some of the most joyous people on earth, but somebody once said about them that their kind of operating motive was that they were afraid somebody summer was having fun and their mission was to end it. How many of you have ever had that wrong impression of God? Maybe before Christ got a hold of you, you, you looked at Christians and thought, man, these are just killjoys, they just want to end fun. And, and to be sure, at times we give that impression, right? When we when we make it seem like Christianity is just following rules, devoid of the relationship and the deep joy that comes with knowing Christ. Now, I can understand that impression coming from people outside of the church, and often we can be guilty and we should repent of giving that impression, but inside the church, how many of us have often gotten that wrong impression and just viewed God as this, this epic killjoy who just wants to stop us from having fun? If you're a Christian and you don't smile or laugh often, you're doing Jesus wrong. It's, uh, the Christian life is not a, a funeral march, but a march towards, towards eternal joy, and we should be growing in joy as we follow Jesus, the author of life. Amen. What does it do to our witness when we give that impression to those outside the faith, right? If we, if, if we just tell them, hey, you have to give up smoking and drinking and sex and all these things, which some of them you do, some of them you don't, though, right? The Christianity redeems a lot of things that the world distorts. When we, when we worship things that are not God, we, we find a lack of joy in them, right? Because we realize that it's supposed to point us to something deeper. But, but if we tell people, hey, look, I don't practice sex outside of marriage because God has, has told me that's a sin, and I think he has my best interest in heart, you actually find sex within marriage can be a really great thing that will, will point you towards God. You won't worship sex, but you'll worship the one who wrote it, the author of that, and find deep joy in him. If we tell the world that, we have something to offer them, but if we just tell them you have to give this up and this up, not replace it with Christ, who is who's all-satisfying, what kind of witness do we have to the world? Jesus is not a killjoy, and we shouldn't be either. So Jesus is invited to this wedding. And, in, and one last point I want to mention real, real quick on the idea of the wedding is that this couple, unnamed and seemingly unimportant, they're starting their marriage off right. They invited Jesus into their marriage. There's a, 
application there. Blessed is the couple that invites Jesus into their marriage. Now, now me, my wife and I, in, a, in a, just a couple weeks, we're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary, which is, is huge to me. I come from uh, divorced parents. I, there's a lot of divorce, a lot of broken, broken homes in my family. So I'm, I'm glad that Christ is holding us together. But I've learned a lot now that uh, the trials that come in marriage are not unique to Christians. But what makes a Christian marriage unique is what you do with that sin, what you do with those trials, right? You can, you can continue to grow bitter, bottle up sin. You can throw it back at your spouse, or you can triangulate towards Jesus. Maybe you can't go towards your, your spouse, but if you're both going towards Jesus, you'll eventually meet each other again. Now, I know when you say that to a, a room full of people, some of you may be going through that. God loves you. Your pastors love you. There, there is hope. There is help. It might mean dying to to some selfish desire and some sin, but, but don't let that fester in the dark. If, if your marriage is struggling, help is out there. My heart goes out to you. It breaks for you as a pastor. Probably the deepest pains that I experience in pastoral ministry is seeing people in, in 10 years of marriage with my wife that we, we would never have imagined 10 years ago, man, this couple that we were close to would not make it. But that's a really heartbreaking thing to see. So what will you do with your sin in a marriage? Will you bring it to Jesus, let him pay for it, let him guide you through the wounds, or will you continue to let it create distance between you and your spouse? Now let's talk about the wine. So the wine in this, in this scene, it causes a problem, right? The wine runs out. It's problematic for several reasons. The, the party stops. A lot of rabbis at this time used to say, where there is no wine, there is no joy. <laughs> the, the wine is really a symbol for joy, right? Jesus isn't, isn't advocating for drunkenness, but he's recognizing that's a, that's a symbol of joy, right? Wine isn't something you can just uh, create overnight. It takes, it's a process. It takes a while to, to become wine when you take grape juice and, and go that route. Now, most scholars seem to agree that the wine of that time was a lot, a lot less strong than we have today, so you could consume that without, without uh, danger of, of becoming intoxicated, which, which Scripture does clearly say is a sin. Again, the other issue with running out of wine is it was a, it was a social faux pas. It was going to bring some embarrassment to this couple. It was, going to, it was going to create an issue where they would be known as that couple that ran out of wine at their wedding. Create the social stigma for them. And again, being a, a couple that was likely poor, they were going to start their marriage off on this bad foot, right? If, they, if the, it is true that they could be fined for this event, they would, they would have even further debt. They would be even poorer than they are now. Now, I love, in this little scene, the interaction with Mary and Jesus. Woman, what does that have to do with you and me? You know how you talk to your mom? You talk to your mom that way, right? It's a, it's a really fascinating scene in terms of, there's a part of that that's, that's going to be different in our day, right? Like when Jesus is saying that, there's a little bit different context, right? It, maybe if, if you replace the word woman with like lady, well, hey, lady, what does this have to do with you and me? Maybe it's a little bit better. But I, I don't think, obviously Jesus is without sin. Scripture tells us that. So it's not like he's dishonoring his mom. But I think it's significant that he says this, that he doesn't refer to her as mom, but he calls her woman. And what I think, what I think he's doing here is that 
He's putting a little bit of distance between himself in that motherly relationship. This is his first sign. His public ministry starts now. So I think what he's saying is, I, he's not dishonoring her. I love you, Mom. However, you have to realize I'm, I'm about to start my ministry. Joseph was a, was a great earthly father to him, but his real father is God in heaven. So at this point, he's saying, my hour has not yet come. I've come to do my father's will, he would say elsewhere. So he's saying a little bit, Mom, as much as you have desires for me, we don't know what her desire was. Did she, she hadn't seen him perform a miracle yet, because it tells us this is his first sign. So I don't know that she was thinking, Jesus, do something miraculous. But maybe she just seen something is different about this child. Angels had told her that at his birth, right? What can he do to help this situation? But Jesus kind of, it's so amazing. I think there's some application here for prayer. He answers on his time, right? He, he says, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. When we pray to God, sometimes we might ask him to do specific things. God, would you, would you give me this job? God, would you repair this relationship? Would you, would you heal this person? And despite what some TV preachers will tell you, it doesn't always go that way. But sometimes it does, right? Sometimes we ask God to do amazing things, but we might have to ask for a long time, and and he's not going to do, he's not a genie in a bottle. He's not going to do something just because we ask him, but sometimes that's his will. He wants us to pray in accordance with his will. And so here I think he's saying, he, he, he does something amazing, he does something miraculous, but he does it on his own time, and he does his, he's doing his father's will, not Mary's. I think he wants to make it clear to her, I don't just do what other people ask me to. I, I'm, I'm here to do my father's will. And it just so happens this time, you're asking for something that I am going to address, but I need to make it clear that um, obedience is more important than, than Jesus being obedient to our will. Does that make sense? Another thing we see in terms of his response to her, I, it's amazing her obedience, right? She, she doesn't, she's not offended at this. She recognizes he's in control. We're giving control over to Jesus, and she tells them, do what he says. I think there's another intre- uh, interesting thing in there about Mary. There are some false teachings out there that would say she's an, an additional part of the Trinity almost, you know, that she, is, she has helped to redeem us. But here we see she was, she was submissive to Jesus' will. Her own son, if you could imagine that the humility, she's a great example of faith, but we, we should not put our faith in her because she was a created being as we are, and she, she's not someone that, that we should pray to, but we should imitate her faith and obe- obeying Jesus as she did. So Jesus fascinatingly responds, saying, his hour has not yet come. Just, just put a bookmark in that. I'd like to come back to that. The hour has not yet come. That's where I'd kind of like to, to end. But... He solves this issue of the wine in a a most unexpected way. Moving into the second little section here about wine. He makes this miracle happen. Note, though, that Jesus never touches or says anything special. He uses the servants to perform this miracle. Now, if you were to go through the entire Old Testament, guess how many prophets do stuff like this? They just say, hey, go, go fill up a jar with some water and see what happens. You'll be searching a long time because no prophet does that. The only person who who commands something with words and then makes a miracle happen is Jesus. Something special about this man. Another thing I think we should note about this, how ordinary is that, right? 
Jesus' commands are, are not heavy or burdensome. He tells us that. His, his commands are, his, his yoke is light. He commands us to do simple things, to pray, to read scripture, to love our neighbor, and to love God. It's not too hard if, if we keep that central in our lives, but so easily we get distracted, we go off track. Theologians of old would call these the ordinary means. The ordinary means of the gospel, that you're, that you're reading scripture, that you're praying for people, and God shows up, right? There are, there are movements in the church that are always looking for something miraculous, thinking that through our efforts we can bring about something amazing. I'll tell you what, the next chapter in, in John's gospel is John chapter 3, where he talks about being born again to Nicodemus. Nicodemus says the right thing. How could I crawl into my mother's womb and be born again? The way that happens, the way God has worked in 2,000 years, is faithful people preaching his word. It's, it's real ordinary. It's real, it could be boring at times, right? You're, they're just words on a page, but when the Spirit is in that, new birth happens. People praying. It doesn't sound sexy. It's, it's simple to pray and read, but God shows up, and he's been working that way for 2,000 years. Take comfort in knowing when things seem mundane and ordinary, that God works through that. And then the amount, somewhere between 120 or 180 gallons of wine. That's, that's what it kind of roughly translates over to. Which again, if that's a symbol for joy, that's more wine than it's going to be able to be consumed by this wedding party. It's a symbol of the, the grace and joy that comes through Christ. It's abundant. We can't get to the bottom of it. There's always more for us if we would just be so faithful as to go to him looking for it. And then the quality of it, it's the, it's the best wine, right? The head waiter kind of notes that. Most people, they, they put out the best wine first, and then once you're, you know, you have a couple in you, you don't notice as much, they put out the worst wine. But with Jesus, it's the opposite. With the world, with the devil, he wants to give you the pleasures of sin first, and then the worse after, right? The misery of sin afterwards. But with Jesus, sometimes the first things he gives us are not as good, but there's always better things on the other side, right? It may seem like a death. Taking up your cross is a death at times, following Christ. But on the other side is a crown, right? The, the cross first, the crown later. So he brings this better wine. It's not the, uh, the off-brand Walmart Mr. Do, uh, Mr. Pepper, but it's the, it's the PhD kind, the Dr. Pepper, right? The better wine. <laughs> that makes some people uncomfortable. But Jesus is not implicit in sin. He's not encouraging drunkenness. But he's not afraid to celebrate, to bring joy. See, the, the problem with drunkenness is it's idolatry. It's the worship of wine where where if we use wine as a means to, to know and love God better, to, to see that as a symbol for joy, it can be a great gift to be enjoyed. The issue is not the wine, it's our hearts, it's our idolatry to love things more than God. When our affections are out of order, we'll make any good gift a God. So Jesus brings the better wine and he saves the party. And the party continues. The, the couple is saved from social embarrassment and possibly even a fine, as I said. Again, Jesus comes and he restores joy to a situation that otherwise would have ended on a, a sad note. How can we follow him in this regard? 
Next point I call witnesses worship. Jesus' glory is revealed. One commentator on this passage says, After 30 years in obscurity, Jesus lifted up the veil that he had thrown over his divinity in becoming flesh, and he revealed something of his almighty power and godhood. I think that's a great summary of this, this text. The picture of Jesus became a little more clear. He was more than just a man. See, our faith is one of revelation. Jesus was revealing his true nature, his true power here. But again, who did he reveal it to? Just a small crowd. Don't see anything in the text to think this was a big extravagant wedding for a poor couple. And he didn't even reveal it to everyone at the, at the wedding either. Seems like just his disciples and a couple of the servers. I think it's a, a little bit of the analogy that he uses of the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. It just starts small, obscure. Maybe in a place like Glenmont, a, a small city like Albany. But it will gradually grow. The small city, small town, Cana of Galilee, mentioned hardly anywhere else. The first miracle caused his disciples to have more faith in their decision to follow him. See, see they'd already followed him. It wasn't the first time they'd had faith. They'd left, they'd left everything to follow him, but they're being confirmed. This is the right choice. They're not going to have buyer's remorse later. They're not going to regret this. Have you experienced that? You place your, your, your faith in Christ, some event in the past, and maybe you, maybe you have doubts. You should, because you're not going to know everything at that moment. But if you keep pushing into him, the more you will not regret that decision. He will continue to confirm you've put your faith in the right object. The fact that it says here that it was his first sign is also important. There are uh, false gospels out there that were written too long after the incarnation of Christ to be considered valid. And all of them have contradictions with the Gospels, right? So uh, I encounter this from time to time. You'll meet somebody who will say, do you ever preach from the Gospel of Thomas? Or uh, uh, there's a couple other ones out there. The Gospel of Judas, which just because of that name, I, you, you think you probably shouldn't read that, right? Um, but the Gospel of Thomas is one in particular that talks about Jesus performing miracles as a child. Now, they can't both be right. Either this was his first miracle, his first sign, or he did some as a child, right? So that's, that's how, I, I just love how the word of God continues to confirm that it's true, that it's trustworthy. So, so take that, church. If you ever interact with somebody who asks you about the gospel of Thomas, you can say, well, it, it, it can't be true if it contradicts the word of God. It, it can't be considered the word of God because it contradicts the real word of God and that Jesus was known, this was written close to the time that he lived by an eyewitness, and it was known that he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana, not as a child. So his glory is displayed. They worship. They pay homage to him. His, gl his glory is displayed. Worship is paid. But also in this text, I think there's a promise made as well. Let me now return to Jesus' comment to Mary that his hour had not yet come. If you'd follow along in, in your Bible and go turn ahead ten more chapters to John chapter 12 with me, so you can see it there with your own eyes. There's ten more chapters in John chapter 12. I'll start in verse 23. I'll put it up on the screen here as well. There it says, Jesus replied to them, 
The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. Here he again references the hour. Now, John spends roughly one-third of his gospel on the last couple days of Jesus' life. We're getting into this here in John chapter 12. He's starting to tell his disciples what was going to come. Jesus had to die. Now, his teachings are very important, but his death is much more important. There are people that will tell you that Jesus was a great teacher, but if he is not our substitute, if he didn't die for us, we don't have good news. We don't have a gospel. The hour he really came for was not simply saving this couple at a wedding from a social embarrassment. It wasn't just turning water to wine, but there's a deeper symbol here. He came to save the souls of many by shedding his blood on their behalf and offering living water for them to drink. See, this text, this hour, looks forward to the hour. It foreshadows how he would save sinners like you and like me. See, all of Scripture is leading up to that hour. Moses' first miracle, first plague, was was turning water into blood. He would do that as a sign of judgment against those who opposed God. But Jesus, he turns water into wine as a sign of grace. See, if, if we're covered by Jesus' blood, we're saved the wrath of God. What would be the symbol wine would be used for on Good Friday, but for his blood? See, Moses turns water into blood, Jesus turns water into wine, and that wine would be a representation of his blood shed for us. Which leads me to ask all of you, have you trusted in Christ? See, all of us prior to trusting Christ have a lot in common with these stone jars. They were for Jewish purification. They were, they were used for a religious act of superstition. I got uh, Mark 7 up here because it gives us some insight into what these stone jars were used for. The Pharisees observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. Not that they were dirty, but it was a a ceremonial cleansing. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping to the tradition of the elders. Not Not a tradition of God, but of man. When they come from this marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed, and there are many other customs they have received, and they keep like the washing of cups and pitchers and kettles and dining and couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? And he answered them, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands, abandoning the command of God. You hold on to human tradition He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. See, ever since Genesis chapter 3, since Adam and Eve sinned in a garden, shame has entered the human condition. 
our natural inclination is to run from God because we recognize there's something unclean, unclean within us. We try to, to clean the outside, but no water will wash away our sin. What's the point? Are, are you putting on a religious act? Do you think you can impress God by what you do outwardly? You need to be born again. Some of you have experienced that. Nothing you do in your own effort can achieve that. But Christ died for our sins. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us so that we could be born again, to experience new birth and know him again. That's good news. That's what John would record in the next chapter with Nicodemus, that new birth. But see, unless God fills you with his spirit, any religious ceremony is just an act And you do it, and it will leave you just as empty and bankrupt as these stone pots. It looks nice, but it's nothing special. There's nothing miraculous about it. Cry out to God to give to you. If you recognize your emptiness before him, he's faithful to answer. He can do the miraculous. He can fill. He can change that water into wine, into water of life. Now my last point I call, while we wait. It was no accident that Jesus did his first miracle at a wedding. Pray for our church plan in Gage, Albany. One of my favorite hymns says, Jesus sought me when a stranger. Wandering from the fold of God. See, he engages us when we run from him. He engaged Adam in that garden. He went and searched for him to bring him back to himself. We want to engage others in this great gospel story that God is telling. You guys are a part of it here in King's Chapel. I'm so grateful for you. We want to bring the better wine to our neighbors who are lost and without Christ. Follow Jesus in that regard. What is that story that he is telling? It's all about weddings. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the very beginning of the story, he takes man, he takes woman, Adam and Eve, he performs the first wedding. He unites them together. John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle, his first sign at a wedding in Cana. We're heading towards Revelation 19, a great wedding banquet, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will eat, we will see him face to face as he will prepare to wash away all of our tears. That great wedding feast of the Lamb, and who is the bride? It's the church that he bought with his own blood. We are engaged to be reunited to this great God even as the unfaithful bride that we so often are. See, our joy comes from him. Others will see our joy if we're rooted in Christ, if we know this God. They will recognize they don't have that joy that can't be shaken despite the deepest trials. See, if, if you know lost people, if you're interacted with them, the closest they might get to heaven is you. But for us, the closest we'll ever get to hell is this earth. So while we wait, well, our job is to invite everyone else we can to that wedding supper. Be filled with joy. We know where we're going. People are desperate for joy. Wine is a symbol of that. Have you tasted and seen that Christ is good? Have you tasted that wine? Invite others to find joy as well. See, this world, it offers a counterfeit wine, but it is fleeting. Joy is temporary but not the wine of the Lord, which is joy and pleasures forevermore. Have you drunk from that well? 
we're going to transition into a time of communion where we're going to see that symbol reflected now. Jesus said, this is bread. represents his body broken for you. So we'll do that together. We'll have wine as a symbol of his blood shed on your behalf. Forgive me, Lou. I forget how we do communion here at King's Temple. Oh, okay. I, I just said enough, and then we can do that. Sorry about that. Uh, a minor technical difficulty. Um, let me pray as we get ready to celebrate that meal together. Okay? Father, again, we thank you so much. You are not a, you are not a, a killjoy. We are desperate for you, God. We are desperate for joy that comes from you. See, the pleasures of this earth, they are fleeting, but at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is no depth that you wouldn't go to to rescue us, to bring us back to yourself. You would give your own son. He would experience separation from you. He would experience your wrath on the cross so that those who place their trust in him never have to. Let us experience that here today. Thank you, Jesus, for giving yourself for us. Thank you for loving us. Pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, that you would penetrate their heart. Just like these stone jars, that you would take the heart of stone and that you would make it a a heart of flesh that would respond to you. You would create faith. They would place their trust in you and you would fill them with your Holy Spirit, that they would be born again. Bring us to the end of ourselves so we see our need for you. Holy Spirit, make it true tonight. Make it true today. In Jesus' name, amen.